0: The following interview with the jazz musician contains drug references and foul language.
1: Hello, welcome to Little City Big Sound. That's right, we're back. David Penderlofren here, and I'm really excited to share this interview with you. In this episode, I sit down with one of Bellingham's most dynamic musicians, drummer Julian McDonough. I've been a fan of Julian's drumming since I first saw him play in 2007 when he was hosting a midweek jazz jam at Boundary Bay, but he's been a staple in Bellingham's music scene for more than 20 years. As you'll hear, he's played his way through the rock, funk, and jazz clubs of the Northwest, and he's worked to make our scene a richer place for listeners and players alike. Julian has played weekly shows, hosted open sessions, promoted and booked regional and national acts, He's taught students individually and in combos from middle school through college. And four years ago, he opened the Whatcom Jazz Music Arts Center. This combined his teaching, promoting, and playing into one nonprofit entity. You've heard people say that jazz is dead. Julian McDonough is living proof that they are dead wrong. Julian McDonough, welcome. Thanks for having me. So for clarity, we're at uh, Binary Recording Studio. Mm Mm-hmm which is where we've rec- recorded the last few episodes. And you brought in, uh, the first thing you did when you showed up today was you showed us a photo of you <laughs> uh, playing, uh, sitting behind a drum set or, or sitting with a couple of musicians Yeah. in this recording studio. What year was that? Any idea? 91. 91. Yeah. So at what point did you start? Like, did you Were you a drummer first and then a jazz music, musician second? Or did you just say, I want to play
0: jazz? Oh. Well, I wanted to be a drummer my whole life. That I, that I knew. Um, in fact, this studio, like I said, when I got here, I was 14. I had a band. I had, had a band since I was in fifth grade. Actually, it's funny. I've been, I've been subbing for a band called The Atlantics. And uh, their keyboard player, Paul Klein, used to teach. The, the first band I was in in fifth grade uh, was me and a keyboard player. And he was a student of Paul's. So we were the Pacifics. And they were the Atlantics. And I actually have a photo of my very first gig. We opened for them in Sudden Valley for the Christmas show. And I think I was in sixth grade. And... uh... (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's like, you know, uh, coming here, recording when I was 14. Like, I mean, yeah, we, you know, I was, I did all, I did the rock thing. I was... um, Rock musician and I and because I worked here, Bob was really cool. He started hooking me up with session work. So I just thought I was the cat's meow. I was like, dude, I'm making like a hundred dollars <laughs> playing someone else's music. I I fucking rule. Um, but to answer your question, uh, that I became a jazz musician, I think very late. I was 20, and it was a very specific, weird series of events that happened. Um, my friend, I grew up with a great drummer, phenomenal drummer, um, very famous now, <laughs> uh, Jason McGurr from Death Cab for Cutie. I think he sabotaged my life, actually. I hope you're listening, Jason. He uh, he was the jazz guy, and I was the crazy rock drummer in high school. And then at some point, he gave me Sonny Rollins' East Broadway rundown, and he gave me a Joe Henderson record called Lush Life that had a, a drummer named Greg Hutchinson on it. And I was like, holy shit, what is this? And so I started to kind of get into that music a bit more. But I was still in the rock scene and I was still doing a lot of studio work. And then when I was like the summer of my night, uh, just before I turned 20, I went to Port Townsend Jazz Festival. And my friend Eli and I, we just went. I remember my dad gave me like 60 bucks. He's like, go have a weekend. Just go experience this. And so we went and slept in his car on the beach and then we would just drift into those clinics and stuff. We'd smoke a bunch of hash in the morning and then go up and, and and sit there and listen to these these people talk. And I was like, wow, there was just so much energy. There were so many people there that wanted to learn this craft. And and I wasn't, again, quite sure, but then I went, I bought a ticket to the main stage show and it was Harry Sweets Edison. It was a trumpet player. who was in Count Basie's orchestra. And uh, back to Billy Holiday and all, I mean, so he was like maybe this, I don't know, it was like 83 when I saw him. And I'll never forget it. He walked on stage and he there was a stool and he sort of half stood and half sat and just played this concert. And he had Mel Brown, who's a great drummer from Portland, was playing, just played Brushes the whole gig. And I was almost in tears because it trivialized everything I thought I wanted to do with music because... Growing up as a white male in the Northwest, it was about fame. You know, it was like music was more about – it was ego, really. It was about becoming famous and and all that stuff. You know, that's just the culture we grew up in, I'm MTV and all that shit. And I just remember seeing this guy play, and I was like, he is in his 80s. He's still playing, and all, he, he just – that's what he wants. He is – he's a musician. That's what he wants to be. He doesn't want to be a rock star. He wants to be a musician. And that just fucked me up. Like, I just, I, I, yeah, I left that thing and I was changed. And then two months later, I was, uh, my birthday, I was the day before my 20th birthday, I went to Jazz Alley with my friends to see Ray Brown, Trio. And Greg Hutchinson, the drummer that was on that Lush Life record, was playing with Ray. And, uh. I just just remember the sound of his, the way he played, and the sound he got off the drums and the cymbals, and just the pop. It was just, oh, I just wanted that so bad. So I went up to him afterwards, and I was like, "Can I have a lesson?" You know, and I told him like, "I love your drumming in Lush Life." He's like, "Yeah, that was great. I love that record." And I was eighteen. I was like, "Fuck you." (laughs) I was, you know. So uh, I asked him for a lesson. He said, "Well, I'm not. I'm. We're going to Vancouver tomorrow. We're gonna be in Vancouver the next two days, so I can't do it." I was like, "I live." closer to vancouver and it's my birthday i'll get my mom to drive me up and so he he was cool i did I my mom drove me up and because i was 19 with no license and no girlfriend uh, and, and anyway i digress um went to his hotel room and we played brushes on a coffee table for two hours and then i went and saw ray brown's trio again that night and he came over after the set and i was so like he came over after he got done playing and sat down with me and my mom and just started shooting the shit with us. And I was like, uh, I think I I left. I was like, we gotta go. He's like, dude, why don't you just hang out and just chill? I was like, I'm dead dead. <laughs> and uh so the next day I went home and I sold all my rock records. And I was like, I'm done. I'm I'm going this way. I wanna do this. And so to me it was like it was a I was a late bloomer, but it was it was like a thing that I just couldn't unfeel. You know, it's a weird shift. And sometimes I'm like, well, did jazz ruin my life? Or? <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, the thing about this music that I really do like is that you do have to deal with yourself constantly, right? It's like you have to play – you play how you are for better or for worse, you know, and you're constantly – if you're actually being honest about it, you're having to address your deficiencies constantly. And it's really humbling. Because you think – I always tell my students this. I'm always like, there's no end game, right? And I feel like when I was playing rock music, the end game was to become famous. And it wasn't really necessarily about a craft. And I'm sure that's – I don't mean that like across the board. Like rock music isn't it, – it's an art form. It is its own great art form. But I just felt like for me at the time, there was sort of an end thing of like you get here and then it's cool. Like Jason. No, I okay. <laughs> Um and with with this music, I feel like y- you get to a point like you feel like you're struggling and you struggle, and then you get to a point where you're like, I am doing it, I'm the fucking man, and then two days later you're like, you feel like a beginner again, and you're like, what the hell? I guess I'll start drinking. No, it. But you know, and all of a sudden you start you start to feel like what what I suck again. What's happening? And when I started to deduce from that, and what I tell my students is like you climb and you do all this work and then you get to a certain place and when you, when it sinks in you plateau at this new level you've arrived at this new level but then that becomes your new bottom base and now you have to start climbing to the next level but that feels like you're starting over again every time and so that's, so the whole that process is this music like that doesn't stop, you're never going to achieve an end game, it's like you're going to be remote, you're going to be frustrated over and over again (laughs) But you know, you. I think the more you do it, hopefully, the on. The, I think the clarity of your own honesty comes out eventually. That's the when you can go to a bandstand and trust yourself and 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 feel like you're going to be able to say what you want to say honestly and execute it. That's when you start winning at this. And for me, that's a very recent development, and it's still not fully realized. It probably never will be. But you know, um, that's it, it's been it's been a really humbling art form to get into at this at that stage in my life and uh but you know i i'm just i'm grateful i had i don't know what i would i mean i had a lot of talent at a young age to be doing rock music and studio work but i don't know where i would be musically if i kept on that track i I think about that often i'm like i don't know if i would have really done anything more so I'm I as much as it's frustrating I'm glad I got to trip into this music (laughs) thanks Jason (laughs) (laughs) yeah your residual checks in the mail (laughs) 10 cents
1: well and you grew up with I mean your dad is a jazz musician
0: right ironic (laughs) well that's the funny thing is like I didn't get a I wasn't really immersed in the music at all I never my dad didn't listen to records at home like he was in graduate school and then he was gigging, and I couldn't go to his gigs. So they were all at bars, because I, you know, I even were asking my dad if I could go to the Beach House Pub, which is next to Everyday Music, or used to be, and stand outside and listen. And he's like, "I'm not going to have my 11 year old son standing on Railroad Avenue at 11 o'clock at night listening through a window." And I was like, yeah, "You don't need me do anything." Man. Yeah, my dad was is a jazz musician, but I, I, the support was there, but I didn't, I wasn't immersed in the music at all. I, you know, I had friends that brought the music to me, and so. You know, that was that was how I got turned on to it.
1: Okay, so You play with a lot of uh, Very seasoned very sort of like uh, Studied in the jazz style players I'm guessing that's mostly who you feel like you're playing with these days Mm -hmm. Um, and a group, or at least a show that you've played twice now, two or three times, um, that made a splash in sort of the non-jazz scene mm-hmm. is a show called Mingish, which is um, John Sampson on upright bass of Bar to Back and some other projects. Uh, Thomas Deakin, sort of ubiquitous uh, saxophone player in in Bellingham. And Stephanie Nillis, piano, sort of classically trained piano player from... Uh, the southeast so they're doing you guys are doing the music of Charles Mingus but th- none of them are are traditionally like schooled in jazz music what's it like for you to play with these people who have like a ton of very genuine like they're far from academic absolutely in the sense that absolutely. the energy is palpable on the stage right. the intensity is there What's it like for you to play um, with them? How, do, how does that feel? Does it feel different? Does it feel – the audience is, is eating it up, clearly. I wonder what it's like for you to sit there and, and be like, you know.
0: I mean, I really enjoyed the spirit. That's what it is. I, I mean, like Thomas, to me, I remember when we were doing the first show, they came over to my house and we rehearsed. And then the day of the gig, I remember him being like, oh, i got to take on this Charlie Mingus. What am I doing? And I was like, man, just play you. Don't try to be anyone else. Like, if you do that, you're not going to succeed. But just I want to do this because I want to play with Thomas Deacon. I want to hear what you have to say on it. Because when he plays himself, he's just the spirit. It's easy to connect with that. And again, that kind of harkens back to this thing about, like, I wish more jazz musicians didn't let go of that sort of the wild abandon aspect of it, the risk, the like, I don't know what I'm doing. You know, it's almost like you don't want to refine yourself because you're closing doors all the time. If you, I don't know, that's probably, you can argue that. But I feel like the more you refined you get, the more you're kind of setting in stone certain things. And um, I don't want to know what's going to happen, you know, and with Thomas and those guys, when we did that, that the reason I took that gig and have done some shows with him, we're doing the subdued string band gig in August. Um, it's because it for me, it's it is it's putting me back in that place where it's like it isn't away from the academic brainy side of it, and it's just do what you can with what you've got, and 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 be just be present, and if you can do that, then you that's gonna be fine, you know. And and that first gig was was uh super heavy um because right before that we lost uh lucas hicks and uh i also had just unexpectedly lost a relationship my girlfriend had just just disappeared (laughs) anyway i was in a pretty rough spot i know thomas was in a really rough spot i remember he came over prior to the rehearsal and we just talked about lucas and we just cried and and we rehearsed and then I didn't really think much about the gig, but I showed up and it was like, oh yeah, this is sort of his first time back in front of an audience. The place was packed out. It was almost like a, a wake in a way, you know? Um, but aside from that, just the way that everyone played was exactly what how it should have been, which is that everyone just played as honestly as they could, you know? And it was funny because, when we rehearsed, there was sort of an idea of like, let's have this person solo first, and then this person solo, and it was sort of like a little bit more organized than I thought it was going to be, and that quickly went out the window as soon as we started playing the <laughs> I don't know if I had a lot to do with that, but I was like, you know, I I would jump in and take solos where I wasn't supposed to, but it was just a matter of like, this is what I'm hearing now, and they were cool, They they go with it, and yeah, that whole band to me just represents spirit, and I feel like that is a very important aspect of the music, and unfortunately it's not necessarily in a, a lot of jazz necessarily and with those guys in Mingish that's, that's like the whole thing you know it's like let's put out these feelings you know and I mean I would love in fact I've had some uh, jazz contemporaries of mine witness that band and then be like dude what the fuck was that and I'm like well if you don't get it I'm really sorry because that was awesome <laughs> You know, go ahead and play your cocktail music. That's cool. <laughs> Zing. <laughs>
1: uh, you taught at Western for a little while, right in the in the mm-hmm. jazz department there. You'd done a bunch of teaching before that, but mostly like private lessons, sort of one-on-one stuff, right? So, what was it like becoming a part of an institution, a part of sort of this larger? structure was it a
0: hard transition to get to well what was hard for me was and I quickly had to just own it was that I don't have theory knowledge I don't know how to describe scales or I mean I'm better at it now but at the time I had none of that information I could play in Mike Allen's band and basically what happened is Mike Allen got the position at Western and he hired his band to be the adjunct professors so it was great because we were a band. And then so each of us had our own combo and we kind of dealt with our combos specifically. And then we would do a lot of playing for the the students as the Mike Allen Quartet. But, you know, it was weird for me to, to be in front of these kids and they're paying a lot of money to learn this music. And all I really wanted to say was like, go smoke a bowl and put on a record And love it or find something that you love and then learn to play that, you know, whatever it takes. But, you know, the weird thing about college to me is that there are certain things that you will get out of it. I wasn't going to provide those things. All I could do was coach them on how to play together. That was the only thing I felt like I was offering. I could teach private drum lessons and then I could assemble a band and say, you guys got to like, here's some material let's listen to the recordings and then I would let them play. And then we would just kind of talk about how they played and how to kind of direct it more and to be more present with each other and to kind of get out of your head and whatnot. But I felt bad. Like I couldn't go to the piano player and be like, you need to put a diminished chord over that, you know? And so it was difficult for me because I, I felt like I didn't, you know, there's so much of it I didn't I couldn't offer them, but I was very open to them about it too. And I said, look, this is all I can give you guys. And if you need more than that, then talk to Mike, talk to whoever. But, um, I mean, it was a great experience. I also just, it was hard because I'd have students that would ask me, like, I really want to be a drummer. What should I do? Like, I'm in school all the time. I don't have time to practice the lesson material. I'm like, well, you want my honest opinion? <laughs> if you want to be a drummer, go be a drummer. Don't be in school. And, uh, I've, I, you know, I've had a lot of flack from even my own... I, had, I gave a master class at our jazz camp last year on the second to last day of camp, and I just had the students sit down and I just said, let's just talk about being a musician in the, in the world today. And a lot of the students I was talking to, they, I knew they were going to go off to music school, and I said, that's great, and do that. But here's the other thing you could also do, is take a third of that money... And go find a private teacher who's playing you absolutely love, and be an apprentice to that person and practice. That's it. So it's you know I had to t- I did tell some students that in college I was like if you really want to be a drummer man you should you know and there was I remember this one piano player came to me and she was freaking out she was having a meltdown about what to do and I just said well look you know there's no hurry to to get a degree. Especially in music, I've never had anyone ask me for a diploma, Um, so I said, "Just take a year off, just practice, like just get into the music and just let the other shit go," you know. But I also found that I probably shouldn't do that all the time. To all the students, (laughs) (laughs) enrollment go way down. (laughs) But I mean, that's I feel like if you're going to be an educator, you have to tell the truth. And I feel like a lot of musicians that teach in a college setting, they're having to worry about their livelihood as a teacher and so they glaze over some some fundamental truths I think about being a musician in the world and one of those is you don't have to spend $50,000 to go to a school to get a diploma to do it you know I mean I, there's a lot of things I wish I would have gone to school to do like I wish I would have gone and learned theory or, and piano but I'm doing that now on my own and I'm slow as a slug doing it but I want to do it so I'll do it Mm -hmm. but I don't see the point like I almost went to Berkeley I got a scholarship to go but it was still going to be like a ridiculous amount of money and I thought man I'm still going to be that's the thing once you get out of school you're still working for the same hundred dollar gigs everyone else is working for (laughs) so if you have 50 grand worth of debt that's a lot of cocktail music to play for you know corporate gigs or whatever to work that off I also didn't have any expectations for those kids to, to become jazz musicians. I just wanted them to have an awareness because, I mean, that's the thing. My, I remember my dad took me to see Branford Marsalis' his trio at Western when I was 15. He made me go. I was like, oh, some jazz, what the hell? He's like, dude, you don't want to miss this concert. Just come with me. So I walked with my dad and my mom over the hill to Western, and Jason McGurr was there. And, and it was general admission seating, so I was like, see ya. And so I just went off with Jason. We sat there, and Jeff Tain Watts was the drummer and I had no idea what any of these guys were about and I just remember when they came out and they played I realized that was the first time i realized there was a whole another level of art and quality that I hadn't been exposed to yet you know and that was a big again that that thing was the first moment where I started to get kind of out of that like big fish small pond thing where was like oh there's a much bigger world out there that I'm not aware of and so for me that was some of the stuff I wanted to give these kids was like even if you don't become jazz musicians just know that this history is here and this art form is here and it's done a lot for civil rights it's done a lot, I mean it's just it's a massive thing and we don't get taught this in school which I think is a travesty I mean say forget about liking jazz the importance of what it did for our society is completely overlooked you know and, and also if you go to Europe and stuff Every country knows their regional composers. You know, if you're from Vienna, you know who, you know what I mean? It's like, we don't have any of that. No one taught, I mean, you might have heard Miles Davis's name or Coltrane's name, but you never played any music. You never talked about the, you know, I mean, Jackie Robinson happened, but prior to that, Benny Goodman and, and Lionel Hampton happened. That was huge. That was 20 years prior to Jackie Robinson. The Savoy Ballroom. Black people and white people were dancing together all the time in the 30s. No one talks about that, you know, and so that we had a musical art form that brought together uh, races of people that, you know, weren't supposed to be getting together. And I feel like it's a disservice to kids to not address it, you know, and I think part of it's because the heroes are black. And I also think it's because it's wrapped up in a lot of drug addiction and stuff. But if you look at the classical composers, those guys were as fucked up as anyone. I mean, you know, lead poisoning and, you know, (laughs) mercury or whatever, you know, just... (laughs)
1: Hey, David here. I want to step back from the interview for a minute to tell you about another cool project that we have percolating. I love podcasting. That's probably fairly obvious to you since you're listening to me on this podcast. And I'm willing to bet that you love podcasts too. In fact, I'm willing to bet that a whole lot of people in Whatcom County love podcasts. So here's the project. The idea is pretty simple. Let's connect the people who are making podcasts in our community to the people who love listening to them. I know that there have to be some other great shows being produced in our neck of the woods, but I need you to tell me what they are. Are you working on a show right now? Does your friend have an awesome podcast? Drop me a line and tell me about it. You can reach out to me on Twitter, at LCBS Podcast on Facebook and Instagram at Little City Big Sound or via the emails, info at LittleCityBigSound.com. Okay, back to the show. Um, so you as a player are, you're incredibly dynamic. You know, you're, you're a very um, playful drummer too. You're one of the few drummers that I feel like uh, can make an audience like smile and laugh while you're playing? That's awesome. <laughs> um, and I'm sure that you get a lot of compliments when you get off the bandstand. You know I mean, there are people, like you said, there are people that follow you, you know, actively look for your gigs to go watch you play. But as a fellow drummer, I can see that like you're always pushing yourself, you're always like trying to get better actively and and working on you're playing we've been talking about a lot of that stuff um so i imagine that there is that there's a drive in you that is still saying like i'm not good enough i want to keep working you know i want to i feel like i really fell down on that gig like i need to get back up and and practice is there do you feel like there's a tension in that where like someone comes up and says that was awesome man and what you're thinking is like it wasn't awesome. What, how do you deal with with um, your perception of how you're playing
0: is different than your audience's perception of how you're playing? That's an awesome question. Because I think that's... I mean, there came a point when I realized like, what an audience tells you. I mean, I think one of the negatives of growing up here... Was that there wasn't a lot of perspective as far as other musicians concerned? You know, there like, weren't a ton of other great drummers around to put you in your place. And when you have an audience always telling you that you're great, it's hard to it's, it's hard to hear something else. It's, you know, a different, it's hard to hear a different perspective, um, and you start to believe it. But there came a point. I remember. Uh, the guy, one guy that used still to this day comes to all my shows and he was a musician back in the day and he's a collector of the music so he knows the music and he, he you know he came up and he was heaping praise on me after a performance and then he made a reference to another band he had just saw who I know of that sounds sadder than a twin baby's funeral you know it was like it just, and, and he was praising that. And I was like, okay, so that doesn't matter. I have to, I, that was a, I guess that was the, the moment where I was like, you know what? You can't live by anyone else's praise. Conversely, you can't live purely on what you feel about how you play. And again, one of the things I tell my students, and this this is a lesson I've learned over and over. It took me a long time to realize what the lesson was, but... I'm sure you've experienced this where you have like a, you have like what you think is a horrible gig and you listen back to the tape and you're like, oh, oh, wow, that actually sounds really good. What? Oh, it's way better. Oh, I'm the man. Yeah. You know, and you're like, but, you, but at the time you were playing it, you thought it sucked. You didn't feel connected or whatever. And you listen back, it sounds fine. You have a great gig, you're like, ah, I'm killing it. And you listen back, you're like, I sound like a moron. When I started to realize, it's like, again, your perception of what, it doesn't matter what you feel about what you, you're doing, really. I mean, it's like, you, what I think matters is that you showed up and you were as present as you could be. And that if you're present and you're actually playing then and there with whoever it is you're playing with, that's the most you can do. But... You know, you can have a shitty day and feel really run down um, or you could be in a really bad mood or be too wired on coffee and you just met a girl and so you're floating on cloud. I mean, all those things contribute to the way you feel about things, right? It paints everything in a certain light, including the way you play. And so – what I started to realize is like, again, your emotions and your idea of what happens on the bandstand is just that. It's just your perception of it. I mean, multiple times with Mike Allen, <laughs> without fail, it seemed like we would have these gigs where I'd be like, man, that sounded like horseshit. And he was like, no, man, that was amazing. And conversely, I'd be like, that was amazing. It's like, I don't know. I wasn't feeling it. You know, like, I don't think we ever agreed on the gigs that were like, <laughs> and that's not true. <laughs> but, um, But I think that's part of it is like, it doesn't, you know, all of that stuff is, that's all ego stuff. That's all, it doesn't really matter ultimately. What matters if you want, if you, if you're, I think being an honest musician, what matters is that you showed up and you were, like I said, just as present as you could be. And that's it. So, and I used to be way less gracious about it, like, especially when I was first learning how to play and people like, man, that was great. I'd be like, dude, I fucked this up and that and this and that. And you must have, cotton in your ears you know and just I didn't realize that I was supposed to just say you know their experience was what they're telling me so I, what I should be saying is thank you for being here I'm really glad you enjoyed it and then I could go home and weep in the fetal position and drink a fifth of vodka (laughs) but you know what I mean like it, it you can't discount anyone's experiences if they hated it that doesn't mean you're a shitty musician it means they didn't like what you did okay it's fine you know I remember I there's a local presenter. <laughs> I played a series one time, and I got done with the stage uh, off the stage, and he goes, "Man, my audience hates the way you play." I was like, "All right, don't hire me then, I guess." I mean, what you know, what do I say to that? Do I do I stop playing? It yeah, all that stuff doesn't matter to me and, and, and anymore. It did for a long time, and I and I wish I would have had. M- that's the kind of thing I wish I had people around me to sort of kicked my ass about was just the perspective of like, don't listen to praise, you know, and take criticism from those you trust, but don't listen to everybody's criticism because I mean, especially growing up in Bellingham, when I was first starting to play, I trusted some people that I quickly found out were very good musicians. And so I started to realize I didn't really want to hear their advice. Not because mm. not because I was being an arrogant prick or anything, but I realized I don't trust them. I don't trust the way they play. I don't like the way they play. And I also realized that's not the voice of reason I want to hear. So, you know, eventually it was. I was able to get around people that I was like, I will listen to that person. You know, and that person's advice I very much respect. But even that, you have to take it with a grain of salt because that's just their perspective, <laughs> you right. know. Right. So... You quit drinking at some point,
1: right? Mm-hmm. 5 years ago. Can we talk about that? Sure.
0: Why did you quit drinking? Um well, let's see. Uh I quit drinking There's a lot of reasons. <laughs> because there's something about taking drugs and drinking that does get you out of your head. So, I get I understand why people do that. I mean it's funny when I tell people this, they laugh and they go, yeah, right. But I have horrible social anxiety. I'm really bad in crowds. I'm really bad with like the idea of getting together with people. It's, I've been that way for a long time, but from the time I was I mean, 20, 21, I just lubricate and I could socially hang, you know, and, but it runs in my family. And I like, I never really knew the, the, I never knew what it was like to have a drink and be cool. To me, that wasn't what you drank for. You drank, so you just get wasted. And, but to me, I don't know if I, to be honest, I don't know if I could have built what I built without having been drinking all those years. Because for me, what it enabled me to do was, I mean, I, I always... I always appreciated the crowds coming out. And I always acknowledge like, I know you guys got home from work. And then you decided to come down here and listen to this art music. You know, I don't take that for granted at all. So for, for many years, what I would do is I'd get done playing. And I'd immediately go to the crowd and just start shaking hands and just thanking people. And just acknowledging the fact that this doesn't happen without them. And I couldn't have done that without alcohol. I hate to say it. I'm not, I'm not trying to promote drinking, but that's how I was able to be social. And now, like my the last year and a half or two years at WJMAC, I don't do that anymore. I, as soon as I'm done, I'm in the green room hiding. And it sucks because I know that contributed to the whole personalization of this scene between the audience and, and the, what we were doing was that, I was making an effort to like make it more about them you know and then when i quit drinking it was a lot harder for me to do that and um but as how has it affected me as a musician that's a hard question because sometimes i wonder if it'd be easier to be a musician if i was able to lubricate um but i also know there's clarity you know, it's led me to, it's, it's led me to a lot of clarity as far as like all the stuff we've been talking about, as far as just getting, gaining perspective and learning lessons finally. <laughs> um, because I also suffer horribly from like the crippling depression. And again, drinking was able to kind of keep that at bay until I woke up. And then it was like, you know, I'd just be a wreck all day. And then by the time I got to my gig, power up, you know, but also, you know, I was just, I was, to me, I, I was a, Shitty husband, um, I, I was not the dad I wanted to be, and I kind of hit a point where I just had to pick a path. It was like either just keep doing this thing and knowing that the damage it's causing or go the other, the other way, and I chose the right way. Although, you know, I got to say, I think part of it too is that it's really hard to want to do just this thing. Because it's a really abstract concept, in the sense that I just want to be a musician and play, and I think when you get together in relationships with people, it's romanticized. Oh, I'm with this musician and he's so like artistic and meh. But then the reality sets in for them that oh, it's feast or famine. It's it's constant mood swings of self doubt and crippling anxiety about life choice. You know, all that stuff comes into play, and I don't think. I don't think I'm that easy to live with now, sober, because I still battle all that shit constantly, you know. Um, So I guess the answer is basically it's just it has given me a certain level of clarity I didn't have before. And I'm I can't necessarily say it's better or worse, to be honest. I mean, I feel better. I don't my mornings aren't slow anymore. I don't spend three hours recovering. Um, So I physically feel better. But sometimes I wonder about the other part of it, you know so
1: let's talk about Megatron okay so uh, when I first got to town in 2007 it felt like there was a big funk thing happening in Bellingham Um, Lucky Brown was playing there were weekly funk jams and central to that scene was Megatron Uh, that was you on drums Delvon Lamar on Hammond B3 uh, kicking bass Mm. and Playing chords and solos and stuff out of the instrument, and Paul Chandler playing trumpet. Mm -hmm. What? How did that band start, and
0: what what was that like? You guys were so intense to watch. Well, it was somewhat dysfunctional in a lot of ways because it was it was like an accident that just kept happening over and over again. Honestly, like the the way we became a quote unquote band is that. Paul called Delvon and I one night, and we had been playing together in La Push, Joel Ricci's funk band prior to Lucky Brown. And uh, Paul called and he said, I have a gig at the Rogue Hero. Do you guys want to come down and play? And I'm like, sure. So we went down and we played, and there was just a certain sort of energy and like-mindedness and ability. Like, Delvon, I can kind of be as free as I want to be and play around the time, and he won't. Acquiesce, Like he will keep it there so that when I land, he's with me, you know, and there's and that was really freeing for me. And the other thing, too, is that we were able to play, I guess they, it was funk music to, in the sense that people were dancing. And that was, there was one big lesson from that band that I took away was that you don't have to play a stagnant beat for people to dance to it. The Beat was the fourth member of our group because we it was there and people could feel it even if we weren't remotely playing it. We were playing around it and polyrhythmically, there was still that pulse. And that was what I was, I think, the most proud of was that we could play like jazz musicians on a funk gig and people could still dance, I think. I was drunk a lot of times. But um, uh, but yeah, I mean, Paul, he got that. We did that one gig and then I think they had us back the next week and somebody was asked us, like, what's the name of your band? He just said Megatron, so I was like, I guess we're a band called Megatron. And then we went into the studio to do a demo just to get more gigs. And so we just went in to Slang Tang Studios, and we recorded five tunes in like an hour. We just went in and just played. And uh, <laughs> next thing I know, Paul's handing me a CD. He's like, "Here's our disc. We need our CD. What the hell? He'd made a cover." Like, I didn't know this is. I was like, that demo, that's a CD now? Okay, now we got a CD. So, you know, we just kept playing and we were regular at the Rogue and it was always an adventure. It was cathartic in a way because I could go play hard and play how I felt and there weren't any rules and people connected to it. So that was cool. But I, I don't know, I was always troubled by it. <laughs> In the sense that we never rehearsed once. I think we rehearsed once and it was a disaster. Cause then it just became opinions and like, you know, nobody wanted to hear the other person's opinion. That band seemed to operate better when we just played and dealt with it musically. But mm. as soon as there was a concept thrown on it, oh Jesus, everyone had a, an an opposite opinion. Um and I got kind of self-conscious about the fact that people were digging this thing that we put zero effort into. And so I was like – I was always kind of talking it down like, yeah, whatever. man, It's fine. It's fun. But I don't want – yeah, I'm glad you like it. But it kept just snowballing. All of a sudden, we got picked up on a label in Japan and the one – that I, I can't remember what it's called. But it was the one that was distributing Sharon Jones albums. We got to open for Sharon Jones on a tour. That was fun. We got to open for Michael Fronty at the Vogue Theater, played the Commodore a few times. I mean it was – it was just this wonderful, like, mistake. It was like the boulder and Raider right to the Lost Ark just kept rolling forward, <laughs> you know? Um, but I'm stoked for Delvon. He's doing great you now. He's he's touring the world with his own trio. He's in Europe right now, and he's doing awesome things, and, and he should be. He's a super talented guy, and uh, Paul's doing great. He's out with March 4th, and getting to all his production stuff, and... Yes, like that was one of the things about that band was there was just like super talented, like authentically talented people that were, you know, I think ability level wise, they can hang anywhere as they're proving it now, right? They're all over the world. So that was fun to get to play in this town with those kind of people, you know, Yeah, unexpectedly.
1: <laughs> in 2014, you opened the Whatcom Jazz Music Arts Center or WJMAC. Mm-hmm. Over the last four years, you've led the organization in bringing a bunch of local and regional acts to the stage. Additionally, you've brought a bunch of uh, well-known national acts to Bellingham. As of July 21st, you resigned from your position as Artistic Director at WJMAC. Um, can you first just sort of talk about what the Whatcom Jazz Music Arts Center is why you started it, and then why you've decided to leave.
0: Um, yeah, uh, so I uh, started it because um, I lived, you know, in Seattle and and played in the cities and whatnot, and and I just realized I was not a city person, so I moved back to Bellingham. I made a lot of connections through. Playing in Vancouver and Seattle, and and got to play with a lot of my heroes. And then I, and I, you know, I started booking independently. I think around twenty eleven um, at the Blue Horse Gallery. But um, even when I lived in Seattle, I was coming up here um, to perform, and I just built a following of people. And it wasn't anything I necessarily tried to cultivate. It was. I started to realize it was kind of a special thing, though. People just kept following me to wherever I had a gig. Over time, I just realized that people were very much into the music, and I started to realize that's a really special thing to have. And so I I took it out of the clubs. Um, I started to book a monthly series at the Firehouse, and that was sort of the beginning of, of booking acts. Um, started to, I did that for a couple years, and then... Um, at the Blue Horse Gallery, I started to book, that was the first time I kind of booked people from New York, Vincent Herring, Peter Bernstein. And uh, and then I was able to kind of, I got umbrellaed under another organization that was doing a very similar thing uh, in North Bend, Washington, called Boxley's. And they had they were kind of cultivating a jazz scene in a very small town of like, they have like 5,000 people there. And and so Danny Kolke, Contacted me and asked me if I would like to kind of branch out and be sort of their franchise version of that in Bellingham, and I said absolutely, you know. Um, and that was the beginning of the Wacom Jazz Music Arts Center, uh, as far as it becoming a uh, legitimized, you know, concert series thing. And uh, the educational part, I really, I'd been wanting to cultivate for years, just because growing up here. There weren't any options like that, you know, and I knew I wanted to play jazz. And I mean, I knew in high school I wanted to be a musician, but there wasn't really anything, you know, I was playing in rock bands, but there was no sort of instruction or educational opportunities to to learn how to play, Um, especially in the jazz field. Like there was the high school bands, but it tends to be from academia where it's very structured it's not to me it's it's when you're teaching especially art and music you've got to deal with people on an individual level on where they are how they learn you know um so i was really passionate about trying to approach teaching that way because that's how i learned and i had a horrible experience in public schools i i did it wasn't horrible i just didn't fit into the system and uh growing up i you know i was kind of made to feel like an idiot (laughs) and um but the whole time I I felt really bad because I also really wanted to learn. And so that kind of informed the way I would teach Mm -hmm. eventually. So yeah, for the first two years, we were at the Majestic and um, it was great. We had like all these kids that showed up for the very first class and they were all sort of not sure what was going on and I wasn't sure what was going on. And um, within those first two years, we had... Kids that just went from zero to sixty. Like one of them graduated high school after our second year, and when he started, he could barely improvise at all. And he ended up getting a scholarship and going to the Miami University of Miami to study with Brian Lynch. And by year three, we had a kid at the new school in New York, uh, four or five kids at Berkeley College of Music. You know, I mean, it was it was awesome to watch these kids just go for it and. Um so and that that part of it was like that was really important. I mean the the presenting part of it was great cuz I love I was I love being able to play with my heroes and not have to drive up I've up and down I5 but the educational part was the thing I was really excited about. And so to me the whole thing was a, a success. So up till recently. <laughs> so what happened? Um well I I surrounded myself with a a well-intentioned board of, you know, you had to have a board of directors for a non-profit. And for a while, I couldn't really, I mean, I had to sort of battle some of the board members as far as they wanted things to be run like a business, you know, like they wanted me to balance the books. Each concert has to break even. But that was never the model. Because most nonprofits are not that way. They're not going to make money. And I never started this. Like, I knew from the beginning that we would lose money on every concert. And so we had to raise money to be able to do this. And um, so there was a lot of, like, trying to talk people off cliffs, you know. And, I mean, for the first three years, I can say I was – very positive, you know. I was trying to keep my head above it and be like, "No, no, it's cool. Just don't stress. You're, this is fine. We're we're doing what we should be doing, except for the one main thing, which was fundraising, you know." And um, my role was supposed to be just artistic director and educator, and that basically was my role. But um, there was never any fundraising. It was just a lot of meetings about it. And so, um, I mean, everybody's well intentioned. Everybody on the board is. They're all beautiful people and, um, they all really care about what we are trying to do. But after a while, I was like, I needed them to, I needed to bring in people that had the skills set to, to do the one main thing, which was to fundraise. And it just the short answer at this point is basically that just wasn't going to happen. And I, I just burned out. You know, I, I didn't see, um, I, I didn't see a future actually happening and I just got kind of tired of answering to a board. Um, I think there was some uh, issues with my process on how I do things. That's not, you know, it, everything was getting done that needed to get done. And so my desire for them to not focus on how I was getting things done, but instead to focus on getting the thing done and they were supposed to get done, it just kind of I hit a wall, mm. you know. and. I just kind of lost faith in it. Again, it's they're they're not I'm not angry at them per se. It's not there's no I'm just I'm just disappointed, you know, and because to me it's not just the 4 years I spent into this organization. It was it's been building it for 20, you know, and so to kind of walk away at this point is is disappointing.
1: Can we talk about the name for a second?
0: Uh, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I mean, it's,
1: so it's the Watcom Jazz Music Arts Center. Yeah,
0: everyone calls it WJMac. That's that's you, right? Like JMac is you. Yeah, I had a, when I first started it. I had a, a saxophone player friend jokingly say you should name it JMac. And I was j- like, that's ridiculous. What kind of narcissistic asshole would do that? Oh, hey, <laughs> and it was funny because originally I was going to call it the Bellingham Jazz Music Arts Center. And my wife at the time was like, "BJ, no, don't, don't call it BJ Mac." And I was like, "Oh yeah, so welcome, yeah, we'll encompass the county."
1: <laughs> does it feel Does it feel weird to be leaving a thing that essentially has your name on the door?
0: No, I no, it feels weird to it feels weird to walk away from something I just it feels like mine, you know, and to have to kind of acquiesce and just that that's weird to me, you know, but, um, again, like I, I'm sure the board sees it a completely different way. I mean, this is only my side of the equation, right? So I'm sure they have their frustrations and their viewpoints, but, um, yeah, it's just, it, you know, it's hard, but again, it's, you know, it will find its own, like, it's not, it's out of my hands now. And that's I'm I'm confident that whoever's going to take it over and the you know the board is basically starting. I'm I'm giving all the um, people that contact me for bookings. I'm just saying go to this website and t- contact them directly, and they'll set you up. So like I said, the bookings will still happen. They'll still have concerts. Their educational thing will work itself out. They've got some. There's a f- couple teachers there that are really great educators. So I'm um, it'll it's it's going to be fine. I hope it keeps going. Um. I think there's just a bigger lesson in for me. I think one of the things the organization did provide me the opportunity to do was to play outside my own ability level a lot. And I think there was – I think for me, I never felt quite ready to make any sort of big leap. Like when I moved to Seattle, I'd only been playing jazz for like two or three years. And I still – I mean, when, so right when I got there, I was gigging with all the top people in Seattle, and I just it messed me up because I just didn't feel ready. It was like I was constantly having to go in, and like I remember when <laughs> this is one saxophone player I was in his band, and he he kept calling me for gigs. And one day I picked up the phone, I was like, "Man, are you sure you're wanting me to play your gigs?" And he's like, "What are you talking about?" I'm like, "Really? You want me to show up?" All right, shit, all right, I'll be there. You know, like I just didn't feel prepared and. Part of the thing about moving back here was I wanted to get that all together and whether that, you know, and I didn't know what was going to happen after that, um, but being able to play with all these musicians and sort of gain the confidence to, and perspective that I I needed, and now it's, I actually feel like I could, like, and I may move out east, I don't really know at this point, but um, it did afford me the opportunity to kind of grow in a way I, I would have probably only achieved had I lived in New York or chicago or new orleans or something you know so um that was it it was nice to be able to kind of feel that you know growth so
1: what's uh i know this is gonna be a loaded question at this point but what's next
0: you know honestly i don't know right at this point what i'm gonna do i have no it's a really weird point in my life i feel like musically i'm finally starting in a weird way but i have um I don't own anything right now, I've sold everything, I have my drums and my clothes, and I barely have a place that I'm living in, and I'm totally fine with it. It feels absolutely right, and I don't know why. I'm kind of just going with, um, I don't know what it is, I'm just purging a lot out of my life right now, I don't know why. But it just feels like the thing that needs to happen. And it's humbling. But I also just feel like that's the only thing I'm supposed to be doing right now. So um, it's also very scary because I'm kind of walking away from – like I don't plan on playing around here. I just don't want to anymore. And it's not It's not a negative. That's the thing. It's I'm not – None of this is a negative. I don't want people to be like, oh, he's homeless? What the fuck? It's like, no, it's not that. I'm not destitute. I'm just, this is what I want right now. And I don't know why. It's very confusing even to me. But I feel like one thing I need to do at this point in my life is just follow my instincts and trust them. Because I think for a long time I didn't. And I it didn't necessarily lead me anywhere good. you know. So I'm just kind of trusting my own instincts and just observing it like everyone else is observing And being like, what the fuck am I doing? Okay. (laughs) But I think maybe it's just another part of just trying to be honest with yourself, you know, just like really commit to that uh, idea of just really listening to your, that whatever that spirit or whatever that is inside of like, I just, this is what I've got to do. I don't know why, but there's something leading me that way. So I got to trust it because I I think we don't do that enough. We don't trust (laughs) that, that deeper feeling. We have all this surfacey stuff around us that we're supposed to upkeep, you know, appearances of a house and all this stuff. And it's like, it's great. And, and I I don't knock any of it, but I just for myself, I don't have a clue what I'm doing right now. <laughs> I mean, I think someone asked me that the other day. I think part of it is that the world doesn't really make any sense right now. Like I, I look at people that own houses and stuff and I'm like, I can't, there's no way if I owned a house, I would purely be working to own a house. And I'm basically trying to just reduce things to where I can still do what I want to do, which is I just want to play. And if that means that I don't own shit, that's fine. To me it's easier. It's like I don't I don't own anything. I'm not connected to anything permanent. I I'm I mean I like having a home, but at this point I'm cool with just not. <laughs> you know, so um I do have some feelings about maybe moving east, maybe actually going out to New York now and doing that, even though I don't want to live in the city. I just, the thing that I realized that's the most important is I do want to be around quality musicians all the time now. And I want to be around professional people. And so I, maybe that's where I'm going with it. I don't, I don't know. I just know that that's what I want to seek out is just more. I, I, I honestly, I would love to be in a band, like a committed band that we work out and that's what we do. I don't even know if those exist anymore, you know, but, um, yeah, that's, uh, interview me in 40 years and I'll tell you like how it worked out.
1: (laughs) Well, regardless of what direction it takes you, uh, thank you for everything you've done at Bellingham. Yeah. This town is a cooler place because of you.
0: Oh, I appreciate it. It's I I love growing up here. It was I to be honest, I'm amazed that it's taken this long for this place to be found out. You know what I mean? Like it's so it's changing so fast now. But I always loved just the ease of life and the beauty of it. And yeah, it's been great. And the community. That's the thing. I think that's actually one of the things that kind of ruined me about cities. Is that when I moved to Seattle, it was the first time I would ever experienced not having a community and seeing how hard that is to build in a city. I was like, holy shit. Most people don't get that opportunity to know what that feeling is. So I ran back here. <laughs> so, yeah, it's been it's been a wonderful um, – yeah, I feel – you know what it honestly feels like is like I feel like I'm now 20 again. Like I'm now – now I'm starting. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> just, just do us a favor and when you move to New
1: York, uh, don't tell too many people about Bellingham.
0: Oh, they already found out, bro. I did all the dirty work for you. They already know. <laughs> and I'll tell all the Californians first. Yeah, I, I think they already know. <laughs> well, man, thank you for having me. This is—I um, love what you're doing with this, and and I love that Bellingham has a need and warrants a podcast where you can present—you know—a lot of people about their experiences in the music scene in a town this size. It's awesome that you're doing this. So thank you for letting me be part of it.
1: Thanks for coming on the show.
0: Yeah, baby. Ow!
1: That's a wrap for this installment. Big thanks to Julian for everything he's done for our little city. And don't forget, visit our website, https colon backslash backslash www.littlecitybigsound.com where you can send us a message, sign up for our remarkably infrequent and totally not obnoxious newsletter, or buy a sticker. And do us a favor. Tell a friend about the podcast. This episode's interview was recorded at Binary Studios. Thanks, Bob. Editing by David Penderlofgren and Andy Rick. We were engineered by Andy Rick. Theme music was written and performed by Andy Rick. And our logo was designed by Andy Rick. Thanks for everything, Andy. Our next episode features a multi-instrumentalist extraordinaire, Thomas Deacon. It is the kind of instrument that could only possibly come along once in the evolution of the human species. There's nothing else that really wraps up the entirety of man's ability to manipulate objects in physical space, like the accordion. That and so much more next time on Little City Big Sound.